0: Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Skylark Three by E. E. Doc Smith, Volume Eight, Chapter Ten, Norlaminian Science. Breakfast over, Seaton watched intently as his tray, laden with empty containers, floated away from him and disappeared into an opening in the wall. How do you do that, Orlon? He asked curiously. I can hardly believe it, even after seeing it done. Each tray is carried upon the end of a beam or rather force, and supported rigidly by it. Since the beam is tuned to the individual wave of the instrument you wear upon your chest, your tray is, of course, placed in front of you at a predetermined distance, as soon as the sending force is actuated. When you have finished your meal, the beam is shortened, Thus, the tray is drawn back to the food laboratory, where other forces cleanse and sterilize the various utensils and place them in readiness with the next meal. It would be an easy matter to have this same mechanism place your meals before you wherever you may go upon this planet, provided only that a clear path can be plotted from the laboratory to your person. Uh, thanks, but I don't think it would pay. No telling where we'd be. Besides, we're better off eating in the Skylark most of the time to keep our cook good-natured. Well, I see Roval's got his boat here for me, so I guess I'd better turn up a few RPM. Come along, Dot, or have you got something else on your mind?
1: I'm going to leave you for a while. I can't really understand even a radio, and just thinking about those funny, complicated rays and things you're going after makes me dizzy in the head. Mrs. Orlon is going to take us over to the country of youth. She says Margaret and I can play around with her daughter and her bunch and have a good time while you scientists are doing your stuff. All right. Bye till tonight, then. And Seton stepped out into the grounds, where the
0: first of the rays was waiting. The flyer was a torpedo-shaped craft of some transparent glassy material completely enclosed except for one circular opening or doorway. From the midsection, which was about five feet in diameter and provided with heavily cushioned seats, capable of carrying four passengers, the hull tapered down smoothly to a needle point at each end. As Seton entered and settled himself into the cushions, Roval touched a lever. Instantly, a transparent door slid across the opening, locking itself into position, flush with the surface of the hull. And the flyer darted into the air and away. For a few minutes there was silence, as Seaton studied the terrain beneath them. Fields or cities there were none. The land was covered with dense forest and vast meadows, with here and there great buildings surrounded by gracious park like areas. Roval finally broke the silence. I understand your problem, I believe. "'Since Olan has transferred to me all the thoughts he had from you, "'with the aid of the Rovalon you have brought us, "'I am confident we shall be able to work out a satisfactory solution "'of the various problems involved. "'It will take us some minutes to traverse the distance to my laboratory. "'If there are any matters upon which your mind is not quite clear, "'I shall try to clarify them.' "'Well, that's letting me down easy,' Seaton grinned. "'But you don't need to be afraid of hurting my feelings.' I know just exactly how ignorant and dumb I am compared to you. There's a lot of things I don't get at all. First and nearest is this airboat. It has no power plant at all. I assume that, like so many other things hereabouts, it's riding on the end of a rod of force? Exactly. The beam is generated and maintained in my laboratory. All that is here in the flyer is a small sender for remote control. "'How do you obtain your power?' asked Seaton. "'Solar generators? Tide motors?' "'I know all your work is done by protoelectricity, "'but Orlon did not inform us as to the sources.' "'We have not used such inefficient generators "'for many thousands of years. "'Long ago it was shown by research "'that these rays were constantly being generated "'in abundance in outer space "'and that they could be collected upon spherical condensers.' "'and transmitted without loss to the surface of the planet "'by means of matched and synchronized crystals. "'Several million of these condensers have been built "'and thrown out to become tiny satellites of norlamin. "'How did you get them far enough out?' "'The first ones were forced out to the required distance "'upon beams of force produced by the conversion of electricity, "'which in turn was produced from turbines and solar motors and tide motors.' With a few of them out, however, it was easy to obtain sufficient power to send out more. And now, whenever one of us requires more power than he has at his disposal, he merely sends out such additional collectors as he needs. All right. Well, what about those fifth-order rays that will penetrate a zone of force? I'm told that they are not ether waves at all? They are not ether waves. The fourth-order rays, of which the theory has been completely worked out, are the shortest vibrations that can be propagated through the ether for the ether itself is not a continuous medium we do not know its nature exactly but it is an actual substance and is composed of discrete particles of the fourth order now the zone of force which is itself a fourth order phenomenon sets up a condition of stasis and the particles composing the ether these particles are relatively so coarse that rays and particles of the fifth order will pass through the fixed zone without retardation. Therefore, if there is anything between the particles of the ether, this matter is being hotly debated among us at the present time, it must be a sub if I may use that term. We have never been able to investigate any of these things experimentally, not even such a coarse aggregation as is the ether. But now, having Rovalon, it will not be many thousands of years until we shall have extended our knowledge many orders farther in both directions. Just how is the Rovalon going to help you do that? Ah, it will enable us to generate a force of the ninth magnitude. That much power is necessary to set up what you have so aptly named a zone of force, and will give us a source of fourth, fifth, and probably higher order of rays, which, if they are generated in space at all, are beyond our present reach. The zone of force is necessary to shield certain items of equipment from ether vibration, as any such vibration inside the controlling fields of force renders observation or control of the higher orders of rays impossible. I guess I'm learning something, Seaton replied cordially. So just as the higher powered a radio set is, the more perfect has to be its shielding? Yes. Just as a trace of any gas will destroy the usefulness of your most sensitive vacuum tubes, and just as imperfect shielding will allow interfering waves to enter sensitive electrical apparatus, in the same fashion will even the slightest ether vibration interfere with the operation of the extremely sensitive fields and lenses of force which must be used in controlling forces of higher orders. You haven't tested the theory of the fourth order yet? No, but that is unnecessary. The theory of the fourth order is not really a theory at all. It is mathematical fact. Although we have never been able to generate them, we know exactly the forces you use in your ship of space. And we can tell you of some thousands of others more or less similar, and also highly useful forces which you have not yet discovered. But are allowing to go to waste. We know exactly what they are, how to liberate them and control them, how to use them. In fact, the work which we are to begin today, we shall use but little ordinary power. Almost all our work will be done by Fourth Order forces, liberated from copper by means of the rovolon you have given me. But here we are at my laboratory. You already know that the best way to learn is by doing, and we shall begin at once. The flyer alighted upon a lawn quite similar to the one before the observatory of Orlock. The scientist led his earthly guest through the main entrance of the imposing structure of vari colored marble and gleaming metal, and into the vast glass lined room that was his laboratory. Great benches lined the walls, and there were hundreds of dials and meters and tubes and transformers and other instruments whose uses Seaton could not even guess. Roval first donned a suit of transparent, flexible material of a deep golden color, instructing Seton to do the same, explaining that much of the work would be with dangerous frequencies and high pressures, and that the suits were not only absolute insulators against electricity, heat, and sound, but were also ray-filter proof against harmful radiation. As each helmet was equipped with radiophones, conversation was not interfered with in the least. Roval took up a tiny flash pencil and with it deftly cut off a bit of Rovalon, almost microscopic in size. This he placed upon a great block of burnished copper, and upon it played a force. As he manipulated two levers, two more beams of force flattened out the particle of metal, spread it out over the copper, and forced it into the surface of the block until the thin coating was at every point. In molecular contact with the copper beneath it it was a perfect job of plating and one done in the twinkling of an eye he then cut out a piece of the treated copper the size of a pea and other forces rapidly built around it a structure of coils and metallic tubes this apparatus he suspended in the air at the extremity of a small beam of force the block of copper was next cut into two Robal's fingers moved rapidly over the keys of a machine that resembled a slightly overgrown and exceedingly complicated bookkeeping machine. Streams and pencils of force flashed and crackled, and Seaton saw raw materials transformed into a complete power plant. In its center, the two-hundred-pound lump of plated copper, where an instant before there had been only empty space upon the massive metal bench, Roval's hands moved rapidly from keys to dials and back, and suddenly a zone of force as large as a basketball appeared around the apparatus poised in the air. But it'll fly off, and we can't stop it with anything, Seaton protested, and it did indeed dart rapidly upward. The old man shook his head as he manipulated still more controls, and Seaton gasped as nine stupendous beams of force hurled themselves upon that brilliant spherical mirror of pure energy seized it in mid-flight and shaped it resistlessly under his bulging eyes into a complex geometrical figure of precisely a desired form lord violet light filled the room and seaton turned toward the bar that 200 pound mass of copper was shrinking visibly second by second so vast were the forces being drawn from it and the searing Blinding light would have been intolerable but for the protective color filters of his helmet. Tremendous flashes of lightning ripped and tore from the relief ports of the bench to the ground rods, which flared at blue-white temperature under the incessant impacts. Knowing that this corona loss was but an infinitesimal fraction of the power being used, Seaton's very mind staggered as he strove to understand the magnitude of the forces at work upon that stubborn sphere of energy. The age scientist used no tools whatever, as we understand the term. His laboratory was a powerhouse. At his command were the stupendous forces of a battery of planetoid accumulators, and added to these were the fourth-order, ninth-magnitude forces of the disintegrating copper bar. Electricity, protoelectricity, and fourth-order rays under millions upon millions of kilovolts of pressure they leapt to do the bidding of that wonderful brain, stored with the accumulated knowledge of countless thousands of years of scientific research. Watching the ancient physicist at work, Seaton compared himself to a schoolboy mixing chemicals indiscriminately and ignorantly, with no knowledge whatever of their properties, occasionally obtaining a reaction by pure chance. Whereas he had worked with intraatomic energy schoolboy fashion, the master craftsman before him knew every reagent, every reaction, and worked with known and thoroughly familiar agencies to bring about his exactly predetermined ends, just as calmly certain of the results as Seaton himself would have been in his own laboratory, mixing equivalent quantities of barium chloride and sulfuric acid to obtain a precipitate of barium sulfate. Hour after hour Roval labored on, oblivious to the passage of time in his zeal of accomplishment. The while carefully instructing Seton, who watched every step with intense interest and did everything possible for him to do. Bit by bit, a towering structure arose in the middle of the laboratory. A metal foundation supported a massive compound bearing, which in turn carried a tubular network of latticed metal, mounted like an immense telescope. Near the upper end of this open work tube, a group of nine forces held the field of force rigidly in place in its axis. At the lower extremity were mounted seats for two operators and the control panels necessary for the operation of the intricate systems of forces and motors which would actuate and control this gigantic projector. Immense hour and declination circles could be read by optical systems from the operator's seats, circles fully 40 feet in diameter, graduated with incredible delicacy and accuracy into decimal fractions of seconds of an arc, and each driven by variable-speed motors through gear trains and connections having no backlash whatever. While Roval was working upon one of the last instruments to be installed upon the controlling panel, a mellow note sounded within the building and he immediately ceased his labors and opened the master switches of his power-plants. "'You have done well, youngster,' he congratulated his helper, as he began to take off his protective covering. "'Without your aid, I would not have accomplished nearly this much during one period of labor. The periods of exercise and of relaxation are at hand. Let us return to the house of Orlon, where we shall gather together to relax and refresh ourselves.' FOR THE LABORS OF TOMORROW. BUT IT'S ALMOST DONE, PROTESTED SEATON. COME ON, LET'S FINISH IT UP. SHOOT A LITTLE JUICE THROUGH IT, JUST TO TRY IT OUT. THERE SPEAKS THE RASHNESS AND IMPATIENCE OF YOUTH, REJOINED THE SCIENTIST, CALMLY REMOVING THE YOUNGER MAN'S SUIT AND LEADING HIM OUT TO THE WAITING AIRBOAT. I READ IN YOUR MIND THAT YOU ARE OFTEN GUILTY OF LABORING CONTINUOUSLY UNTIL YOUR BRAIN LOSES ITS EDGE. Learn now, once and for all, that such conduct is worse than foolish. It is criminal. We have labored the full period. Laboring for more than the length of time without recuperation results in a loss of power, which, if persisted in, wreaks permanent injury to the mind. And by it you gain nothing. We have more than ample time to do that which must be done. The fifth-order projector shall be completed before the warning torpedo shall have reached the planet of the Fenachrone, Therefore, overexertion is unwarranted. As for testing, know now that only mechanisms built by bunglers require testing. Properly built machines work properly. But I'd have liked to have seen it work just once anyway, lamented Seaton as the small airship tore through the air on its way back through the observatory. You must cultivate calmness, my son, and the art of relaxation. With those qualities, your race can easily double its present span of useful life. Physical exercise to maintain the bodily tissues at their best, and mental relaxation following mental toil. These things are the secrets of a long, productive life. Why attempt to do more than can be accomplished efficiently? There is always tomorrow. I am more interested in that which we are now building than you can possibly be, since many generations of the Roval have anticipated its construction. Yet I realize that in the interest of our welfare and for the progress of civilization, today's labors must not be prolonged beyond today's period of work. Furthermore, you yourself realize there is no optimum point at which any task may be interrupted. Short of the final completion of any project, one point is the same as any other. Had we continued, we would have wished to continue still further, and so on, without end. You're probably right at that, the impetuous chemist conceded, as their craft came to earth before the observatory. Crane and Orlon were already in the common room, as were the scientists Seaton already knew, as well as a group of women and children, still strangers to the terrestrials. In a few minutes Orlon's companion, a dignified white haired woman, entered, accompanied by Dorothy, Margaret, and a laughing, boisterous group of men and women from the country of youth. Introductions over, Seaton turned to Crane. How's every little thing, Mart? Very well, indeed. We are building an observatory in space. Or well, rather, Orlon is building it. I'm doing but little I can to help him. In a few days we shall be able to locate the system of the Fenachrone. How is your work progressing? Smoother than a kitten's ear. Got the fourth-order projector about done. We're going to project a fourth-order force out to grab us some dense material, a pretty close approach to pure neutronium. There's nothing dense enough around here, even in the core of the central sun, so we're going to go out to a white dwarf star, one a good deal like the companion star to Sirius and Canis Major, get some material of the proper density from its core, and convert our sender into a fifth-order machine. Then we can really get busy, go places, and do things. Neutronium? Pure mass? queried Crane. I've been under the impression that doesn't exist. Of what use can such a substance be to you? Well, you can't get pure neutronium, of course. Couldn't use it if we could. What we need and are going to get is a material of about 2.5 million specific gravity. Gotta have it for lenses and controls for the fifth order forces. Those rays go right through anything less dense without measurable refraction. But I see Roval's giving me a nasty look. He's my boss on this job and I imagine this kind of talk's barred from the period of relaxation, since it sounds like work. Is that so, Chief? You know that it is barred, you incorrigible young cub, answered Roval with a smile. All right, boss. One more little infraction and I'll shut up like a clam. I'd like to know what the girls have been doing.
1: We've been having a wonderful time,
0: Dorothy declared.
1: We've been designing fabrics and ornaments and jewels and things. Wait till you see them. Fine. All right. Orlan. it's your party. What do we do?
0: This is the time of exercise. We have many forms, most of which are unfamiliar to you. You do all swim, however. And as that is one of the best exercises, I suggest we all swim. Lead us to it seaton exclaimed then his voice changed abruptly wait a second i'm not sure i like the idea of us swimming in copper sulfate solution we swim in fresh water as often as in salt the pool is now filled with distilled water the terrestrials quickly donned their bathing suits and all went through the observatory and down a winding path bordered with peculiarly beautiful scarlet and green shrubbery to the pool the pool was an artificial lake covering a hundred acres its polished metal bottom and sides strikingly decorated with jewels and glittering tiles and tasteful yet contrasting inlaid designs any desired depth of water was available and plainly marked from the fenced off shallows where the smallest children splashed to 40 feet of liquid crystal which received the diver who cared to try his skill from one of the many springboards, flying rings, and catapults which rose high into the air a short distance away from the entrance. Orlon and the others of the older generation plunged into the water without much ado and struck out for the other shore using a fast double overarm stroke. Swimming in a wide circle, they came out upon the apparatus and went through a series of methodical dives and gymnastic performances. It was evident that they swam as Orlon had intimated for exercise. To them, exercise was a necessary form of labor, labor which they performed thoroughly and well, but nothing to call forth the whole-souled enthusiasm they displayed in their chosen fields of mental effort. The visitors from the country of youth, however, locked arms and sprang to surround the four
1: terrestrials, crying, "'Let's do a group dive!' I don't believe I can swim well enough to enjoy what's coming,
0: whispered Margaret to Crane, and they slipped into the pool and turned around to watch. Seaton and Dorothy, both strong swimmers, locked arms and laughed as they were encircled by the green phalanx and swept out to the end of a dock-like structure and upon a pot of catapult. Later, after exercise... Every light was extinguished, and there was felt a profoundly deep vibration, a note so low as to be palpable rather than audible, and simultaneously the utter darkness was relieved by a tinge of red so dark as to be barely perceptible, while a peculiar somber fragrance pervaded the air. The music rapidly ran the gamut to the limit of audibility, and in the same tempo the lights traversed the visible spectrum and disappeared. Then came a crashing chord and a vivid flare of blended light, ushering in an indescribable symphony of color and sound, accompanied by a slower succession of shifting, blending odors. The quality of tone was now that of a gigantic orchestra, now that of a full brass band, now that of a single, unknown instrument, as though the composer had, at his command, every overtone capable of being produced, by any possible instrument, and with them had woven a veritable tapestry of melody upon an incredibly complex loom of sound. As went the harmony, so the play of light accompanied it. Neither music nor illumination came from any apparent source; they simply pervaded the entire room. When the music was fast, and certain passages were of a rapidity impossible for any human fingers to obtain. The lights flashed in vivid, tiny pencils, intersecting each other in sharply drawn, brilliant figures, which changed with dizzying speed. When the tempo was slow, the beams were soft and broad, blending into each other to form sinuous, indefinite writhing patterns. What do you think of it, Mrs. Seaton? Orlon asked. It's
1: marvelous, breathed Dorothy, awed. I never imagined anything like it. I can't begin to tell you how much I like it. I never dreamed of such absolute perfection of execution. And the way the lighting accompanies the theme is just too perfectly wonderful for words. It's brilliant. Brilliant, yes.
0: Perfectly executed, yes. But I notice you say nothing of depth or feeling or of emotional appeal. Dorothy blushed uncomfortably and started to say something, but Orlan silenced her and continued. You need not apologize. I had reason for speaking as I did, for in you I recognize a real musician. And our music is indeed entirely soulless. That is the result of our ancient civilization. We are so old, our music is purely intellectual, entirely mechanical instead of emotional. It is perfect, but, like most of our other arts, it is almost without feeling. But your statues are wonderful. As I told you, those statues were made many, many years ago. At that time we also had real music, but unlike statuary, music at that time could not be preserved for posterity. That is another thing you have given us. Attend! At one end of the room, as upon a three dimensional screen, the four terrestrials saw themselves seated in the control room of the Skylark. They saw and heard Margaret take up her guitar and strike four sonorous chords in A. Then, as if they had been there in person, they heard themselves sing the bullfrog and all the other songs they had sung far off in space. They heard Margaret suggest that Dorothy play some real music. "'and heard Seaton's comments upon the quartet. "'In that, youngster, you were entirely wrong. "'The entire planet was listening to you very attentively,' "'said Orlon, stopping the reproduction for a moment. "'We were enjoying it, "'as no music has been enjoyed for thousands of
1: years.' "'The whole planet?'
0: gasped Margaret.
1: "'Were you broadcasting it? "'How could you?'
0: "'Easy,' grinned Seaton. "'They can do most anything with these rays of theirs.' "'When you have time in some period of labour, "'we would appreciate it very much "'if you four would sing for us again, "'would give us more of your vast store of youthful music, "'for we can now preserve it exactly as it is sung. "'But much as we enjoyed the quartet, Mrs. Seaton, "'it was your work upon the violin that took us by storm, "'Beginning with tomorrow, my companion intends to have you spend as many periods as you will playing for our records. We shall now have your music.'
1: "'Well, if you like it so well, wouldn't you rather I just play you something I haven't played before?' "'That is labor. We could not—' "'Oh, Piffle!' Dorothy interrupted. "'Don't you see that I can really play right now, with somebody to listen, who really enjoys music?' If I tried to play in front of a record, I'd be perfectly mechanical.
0: a girl, Dot. I'll get your fiddle. Keep your seat, son, instructed Orlon, as the case containing the Stradivarius appeared before Dorothy, borne by a pencil of force. While that temperament is incomprehensible to every one of us, it is undoubtedly true that the artistic mind works in that manner we will listen. Dorothy swept into the melody in F, and as the poignantly beautiful strains poured forth from that wonderful violin, she knew she had her audience with her. Though so intellectual, they themselves were incapable of producing music of real depth of feeling. They could understand and could enjoy such music with an appreciation impossible to people of lesser mental attainment, and their profound enjoyment of her playing burned into her mind by the telepathic almost hypnotic power of the norlaminian mentality raised her to heights of power she had never before attained playing as one inspired she went through one tremendous solo after another holding her listeners spellbound urged on by their intense feeling to carry them further and ever further into the realm of pure emotional harmony the bell, which ordinarily signaled the end of the period of relaxation, did not sound. For the first time in thousands of years, the planet of Norleman deserted its rigid schedule of life to listen to one earth woman pouring out her very soul upon her incomparable violin. The final note of memories died away in a diminuendo wail, and the musician almost collapsed into Seaton's arms. The profound silence, more impressive by far than any possible applause, was soon broken by Dorothy.
1: There. I'm all right now, Dick. I was about out of control for a minute. I wish they could have had that on a recorder. I'll never be able to play like that again if I live to be a thousand years old.
0: It is recorded, daughter. Every note, every inflection is preserved. "'precisely as you played it,' Orlan assured her. "'That is our only excuse for allowing you to continue as you did, "'almost to the point of exhaustion. "'While we cannot really understand an artistic mind "'of the peculiar type that belongs to you, "'we realize that each time you play, "'you are doing something no one, not even yourself, "'can ever do again in precisely the same subtle fashion.' Therefore, we allowed, in fact encouraged you, to go on as long as that creative impulse should endure. Not merely for our pleasure in hearing it, great though that pleasure was, but in the hope that our workers in music could, by a careful analysis of your product, determine quantitatively the exact vibrations or overtones which make the difference between emotional and intellectual music.